Welcome to Travel Worth Living, a travel podcast helping to share stories that matter from around the world. My name is Seth, and this week I connected with an ambitious young man from South Africa who is transforming the architectural space. He was able to attend a university in America in order to better learn how to help his home country rebuild from the damaging effects of apartheid. During our conversation, he shares what inspired him to study architectural design, how he is impacting local communities in South Africa, and how you can get involved with this project. If you're interested in joining the summer internship which Ubuntu Design Group offers, uh, you can find out more information about that by clicking the links in the show notes. And now without further ado, here is my conversation with Wandile. Hey man, thank you very much for having me, really excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. So I actually uh, found out about you through uh, one of my other podcast uh, guests, Stephen Alcock, and he made a documentary about what you're doing there in South Africa. Um, Let's go ahead and get started. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that production process and who you are. Like, well, I guess start at the beginning, who you are and how you guys met and what you were doing there in Michigan. Yeah, my uh, my name is Wendy Tiana. I'm from Durban, South Africa, uh, born and bred. I, uh, you know, grew up in different neighborhoods from informal settlements to shanty towns to townships uh, to communities that were designed and built to, to suppress people by the apartheid government. So from a very young age, I made it to my mission to uh, work towards designing neighborhoods that are more inclusive, but that enable opportunities for all. Uh, Because I realized that at the core and center of most problems within my community was the lack of dignified housing. Because without a home, you do not have a physical address. Without a physical address, you do not, uh, you can apply for a job. Without a job, you don't have money. Without money, you can buy a home. So it creates this cycle of poverty. And, uh, you know, without, a dignified place to call home. Kids don't have a place to go and, and do their homework. Without a dignified place to call home, you do not have safety. So you have just several problems, you know, come out of that. But one of the things I realized, you know, growing up in these communities was realizing just how creative individuals were. You know, they were making homes out of practically any material that they could, they could gather. So I wanted to sort of you know, study architecture and um, combine it with the local ingenuity and creativity and partner with these communities to design spaces and places that were dignified, that enable them to continue being creative and, and thriving and enable opportunities for all, you know, basically do the opposite of what apartheid architecture was doing. So I, I went and studied architecture in Michigan, and that's where I met Stephen Alcock, and uh, here we are now. Yeah, that's awesome. So going back, you said, you know, you're doing exactly opposite of what the apartheid uh, architecture was meant to do. I know for me, um, it's been the last couple of years that I've been learning more and more about apartheid, but it's just not very widely talked about here in the U.S. Uh, well, I say the U.S. as an American, but I don't know how uh, much it's known in other parts of the world as well. Um, could you go ahead and start by telling a little bit about what apartheid is and how it affected South Africa? Apartheid was a system of segregation um, that existed in South Africa where the minority were ruling the majority, you know, quite opposite to to the United States. And the minority were made out of um, 
Dutch descendants, German descendants, and English, um, who are known as basically the Afrikaners and the, the English. So what should happen was, um, you know, divide and rule. So they broke the communities into stratospheres based on like a caste system based on race. So there was black, which were natives, which were majority of the people. There were Indians who were brought in as sort of indentured service uh, servants to, to work in the sugar canes. And then there were coloreds. Coloreds were mixed. So, you know, in order for them to have a, a grip at controlling the society as a minority, they divided it where, you know, if you're colored and had a little white in you, you had a little more privilege. If you're Indian, you had also a little bit more privilege so that they could control the majority, which is like the black um, class. And um, they moved people from their land, put them in these sort of like labor camps. They designed called townships, which were often placed like 40 kilometers away from town. Uh, built to be 40 square meter homes, which forced people to spend 40% of their income commuting to work, which then disenfranchised them from being able to develop their own communities. Uh, but also those communities were designed intentionally to be devoid of economic opportunities, to be devoid of gathering spaces and places because that would enable uh, social, ga social gatherings and maybe uh, revolts against the, the apartheid system. Um, so what would another thing that they would do is, if you're a black South African, you had to carry a, a passport to go to town. So t in town, that's where only white people lived, um, and um, in the in these labor labor camps, that's where black people lived. And there was a curfew at 6 uh, p.m. Similar to how they treated sort of like the Jews in Europe, where there were a similar type of labor camps, but they were called ghettos, which is where we now get the quote-unquote cool word ghetto, um, similar thing. And I think another ingenious thing that the party did was right next to the factories of where men worked, they built giant beer halls uh, so that when they get paid, they would go and drink it away. And you can already imagine if someone is already emasculated and controlled and, and bullied in his own country and can really stand for his own family, um, they're a lot more susceptible to to find outlets uh, such as alcohol. But all these things, when you look at them, they were designed to keep sort of the black native South Africans dependent on the white minority um, sort of rulers, uh, colonizers of the time. Uh, so that's, a, that's uh, apartheid. Wow. Yeah, uh, learning to, learning about this stuff is just mind blowing to me. Um, how you know we can do this to each other, you know, as humans, and the power yeah. and control, and just how um, planned it was. Like you were saying, you know, these communities were planned uh, devoid of any community gathering spaces. They were built to separate each house, you know, so everybody just uh, stayed controlled and separated yeah. and had no emotional contact with the community. Um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's crazy. One of the quotes, I think it was, I think it was in the, the film that Steven made with you. Um, one of the quotes that I really loved was you're not giving people dignity through providing better housing. You're affirming the dignity that they already have. And like you were saying with, uh, this, these apartheid communities, um, they were just, 
they were stripped of this dignity uh, by by the system, you know. And um, so what what you're trying to do is affirm affirm that and give back to them um, the the community that they so desperately need. Um, so what is the situation like right now? I mean, how many years ago was this? So I was born three months before Nelson Mandela became president. So effectively three months before apartheid ended. Um, and so 26 years later, the laws have changed, but that doesn't mean the neighborhoods have changed. Mm -hmm. Just because the laws have changed doesn't mean that all of a sudden the neighborhoods moved closer to each other or moved closer to economic opportunities, etc. So, uh, you know, today you still see majority of the people, especially in the morning, commuting to work, right, in towns and in suburbia where mostly predominantly white communities are, um, you know, so you still see people spending 40% of their income commuting. Even though things have gotten better and have changed, you, know, you start seeing the remnants of that. So those are some of the work that I do with Ubuntu Design Group, trying to design spaces and places um, that enable economic opportunities where could it be more than just a house? Could it have a commercial space where a family could uh, run a daycare or uh, have an Airbnb or um, enable that particular community to, to thrive. But I think I like what you said when you said um, that quote from the from the movie is is that we we don't provide people with dignity. Everyone has that God given intrinsic value and dignity. Um, but sometimes due to systems such as apartheid and poverty, etc., which are all designed. You know, people are stripped away of that dignity or, or they can't see it due to the conditions by which they live. So I guess a big part of my work is helping people realize the dignity they already have. Yeah, that's awesome. So what made you interested in uh, architecture in particular? Just growing up in um, apartheid-shaped neighborhoods and, and wanting to see my community get better. Just seeing that need. That's awesome. So then you went to school there in Michigan. And uh, tell me a little bit about Ubuntu, Ubuntu Design Group. Like, how did, how did that start? And uh, what has kind of been the journey that has led you on? Yeah, no, I started Ubuntu Design Group in college, partly as a protest. Because, you know, too often architecture is seen as a vehicle for the rich. And when you're designing mm -hmm. for low-income communities, it's often not quite, it's not seen as quite architecture. Mm -hmm. So I was like, what about the other 90% of the world that do not afford architects? Um, and Ubuntu was based on that fundamental premise that if, if apartheid architecture could be so effective in segregating and oppressing, then community-led design can bring people together and enable opportunities for all. Uh, so that designing is affordable homes with commercial spaces to enable families to financially sustain themselves. We competed at One Young World in Bangkok against kids from Oxford and Harvard and Yale. I won there. I became a resolution fellow. So I got um, you know, mentors from Harvard Business School and, 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 and Wall Street to help me develop the model. We presented it at the United Nations. We finished top six finalists at South by Southwest. I was with President Obama uh, just this past November. Um, I mean, 2019 November, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because of the work that I'm, I'm doing. I'm, I'm an Obama leader now. 
so a lot of amazing things have happened um, uh, for our pilot home. We built a home for a family that was living with disability that had given their 15-year-old son away due to poor living conditions. Now they live with their 15-year-old son. They have a dignified home that's handicap accessible. They are running a daycare, which has 18 kids, which means 18 mothers can now go to work as they send their kids to school. And out of that, they've been able to raise enough money to build a whole new facility that's going to be a daycare and even buy a car. So you start seeing the ripple effects that people are not lazy. They just need a leg up to enable them to, to thrive. Wow, that's that's incredible. And, and that's... That's such an awesome um, thing that I think we all need to remember. Uh, a lot of times, you know, people just need help. Um, you know, sometimes they don't know where to start or they don't have, they have a disadvantage. And that's kind of what I love about business and entrepreneurship is a lot of it is just helping each other, you know, connecting with people, networking. And um, so being able to do that with, with this Ubuntu design group um, for other people is absolutely incredible. Uh, so, so tell me a little bit about the the business side of it. Um, for anybody who's interested in entrepreneurialism in the travel space, um, what have been some unique challenges that you faced uh, setting this up? Well, maybe before that, like, I'll just have to sort of explain the the other component that involves travel. We've okay. got something called the Ubuntu Architecture Summer Abroad, where you know young professionals and students within the built environment get to um, you know, come down to South Africa and become a part of a design build program that we put together where they get to learn about African architecture whilst um, you know, using their talents and skills to design and build a home for a family that was disenfranchised by apartheid architecture. So people can actually go and check that out at Ubuntu uh, Architecture Summer Abroad.com and, or UASA.com actually, UASA.com. And uh, it's, a, it's a program that will be running in June. Uh, we're, we're doing it as a masterclass. It's going to be digital this year due to Corona, but it's just an amazing experience to get to learn about, you know, the design world and architecture from a a context outside your own. Learn about African architecture and what can we learn from that. And I think it's very important, especially with Black Lives Matter and everything going on, the importance of learning about the others' architecture and how then that starts shaping how you design or, or show up in your particular environment. And we're obviously trying to uh, seek out sponsors and, and people who can um, foot in uh, scholarships for kids coming from underprivileged uh, backgrounds so that they can also attend the program. So if you want to support or be a part of it, definitely go to uasa.org and I think that's really exciting um, and then in terms of the business side as well of, of Ubuntu Design Group in addition to all this we are an architecture consultancy that that loves to design any work that has an angle by which we can bring about some sort of social impact and, and, and sustainability yeah, that's awesome. And I'll for sure put all those links in the in the show notes. Um, so for those listening, you can check that out after you're finished listening to this episode. But yeah, what what an exciting opportunity. Uh, that's that's incredible. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. 
And then, yeah, for the for the the business aspect, um, what have been some unique challenges? Because you started this up in Michigan, and man, like oh. you said, you've been to the UN. Um, you're you're part of uh, Obama's initiative. I forget the name of that right off. <laughs> um, Obama Foundation. The Obama Foundation. Okay, uh, and yeah, and and you're doing it in South Africa. So, what have been some unique challenges you faced uh, as an entrepreneur? We didn't make money until like five years. <laughs> partly because we were, <laughs> partly because it's like you can't do anything. It was tough to do stuff in South Africa whilst in Michigan trying to finish some of the yeah. degree. So what we did was within those five years with Steven, we were able to sort of build a concept, build a brand, build a why, build a network build the clouds, the fellowships, just pretty much run the nonprofit and crowdfund and build that first house, put our name out there, do competitions, etc. So now that I'm back in South Africa, I've hit the ground running. Um, and it's a lot easier because we had already like spent a good four years laying the foundation. You know what I mean? Got you. And yeah. uh, only now are things starting to sort of make sense and move forward, at least from a financial end. But from a brand end, you know, whether you're in New York or Bolivia or South Korea, cats already know about us, which is, which helps. That's awesome. Tell me a little bit about the projects that you've done. You said you mentioned the one about the um, where you created the daycare and they're taking care of 18 families. Um, 18 kids. Are there any other projects that you have done recently that really stand out? Nothing that's built yet. So everything we're working on stuff that's in the pipeline. There's an exciting uh, container, net zero container development. Uh, we're actually just talking about what we're going to call it today. <laughs> oh, fun. Uh, so yeah, um, to mix this development for young professionals and and uh, students are going to have 3D printing, um, you know, entrepreneur opportunities. Um, you know, everything will be green, uh, uh, solar panels would sort of provide electricity. Uh, so really cool development. We're going to do it in Durban and we're also going to deploy it in, in, in different parts of the world and adapt it using just shipping containers. Um, we're also working on just a couple of uh, some residential uh, small renovations. Um, what else? Yeah, we're working on uh, a project that could potentially work where we're designing a, a home for special needs kids in Angola. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're awesome. always looking for cool projects. We're always looking for cool, cool projects to, to do that, you know, are exciting, like what I just told you. Yeah, that's awesome. So I know we've talked about it a little bit, um, but what is what is the grand vision for um, Ubuntu Design Group? I know you're you're um, engaging students. You're helping teach them about architecture and stuff. You're um, affirming dignity through you know community development and stuff. Um, are there are there any other things that you're really wanting to hit with this uh, with this project? 
Yeah, I think that's a good question. I think at the very core of what we're trying to achieve is um, to create a world where everyone has access to dignified design, mm-hmm. um, where you know people have dignified, affordable housing, and we, we believe that's a base for people to be able to thrive, right? Um, so whether it be through containers or some other sustainable form or building homes. Uh, so that's, that's really our key objective, trying to create um, a world uh, that people have access to architectural design and financial inclusion to help them solve their own uh, problems within these, their communities. And our mission is to empower and in, inadvertently shelter, sheltered families to overcome the economic and social challenges and barriers through innovation, collaboration, um, in designing of the future vision of their home and community. You know, we want them to take lead and ownership and we want the next generation of designers to, to to understand the importance of designing for people outside their own context and outside their own immediate culture. Got you. That's awesome. Um, if you don't mind, I wanna I wanna kind of get into the nuts and bolts of of this. Uh, you were talking about, uh, and it was covered a little bit in the video. And for those listening, uh, again, I highly recommend going and watching the YouTube. It's available on YouTube. I'll have the link in the show notes. Um, fantastic film that Stephen Alcock put together uh, about this. But I I wanted to ask a little bit more about. You mentioned the inclusion with designing the home. So. What exactly is the process for creating these homes? Uh, what, how do you go in there and include them and make it financially accessible? Uh, what, are, what are some of the details? It's a great question. Um, I think number one is just like, no one knows best where they're going to live than the people are actually going to live there. Mm-hmm. Right? Too often we, we see the architects as the experts, but no, the reality is you are the experts because you are the one who's going to live there. And the architect should be the vehicle by which to bring your dream to life. You know what I mean? So that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Yeah. And our whole process is called listening to build, right? So we listen to build and we build to enable, could a house be more than just a house? Could it also be a place that allows commerce commerce and enables uh, income generation? And, And lastly, we enable Ubuntu. So it's not just about a house, not just about the commercial space, but about all of these things coming together to create a thriving neighborhood, yeah, a thriving community. So that's our process and how we design. We work with the family and we design with them and we build with them. Um, and then in terms of funding, like we are working right now and trying to partner with financial institutions and create a micro-lending model that will enable families that wouldn't otherwise qualify for a regular bank mortgage to to get one so that we build their home and then they, through the commercial space they're able to pay back and mm-hmm. to be honest that's been you know to be honest it's been really tough to to sort of uh get going but we're still working on it got you yeah well that's an awesome model and then you mentioned the containers. Uh, for those who don't understand what you're talking about, could you explain a little more about that? Because, yeah, containers sound like a very unlikely source for a building. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, shipping container conversions. And, you know, if you want to see how that normally looks like, just Google shipping container conversions. 
So we're looking at um, using those because Durban is the largest port in Africa. Uh, so we're like, well, we already have all these shipping containers that are going to waste. How can we convert that and, and use it to create accommodation and, and dignified living? Got you. That's awesome. And and so then, yeah, you, you want to put in like the solar and make it very almost self-sustainable. 100%. We want it to be 100% self-sustaining. Yeah. Recycle nice. everything. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, what has been, because you grew up in, in uh, like, the shantytowns, the, um, the apartheid communities, and then you traveled to America, you got an education, and now you're back in South Africa um, trying to help other people by providing uh, housing opportunities. Can I, uh, I kind of go into your personal journey a little more? Um, what has that been like for you? Uh, how did you get the opportunity to go to America and um, how did you get the opportunity to kind of branch out from those uh, more poor communities um, to being able to do what you're doing now? Good question. Uh, so no, I, I didn't have the money to go study in America. I had actually a full ride to study at the Durban University of Technology and I was studying there, but I'd always had this dream of going to study in America, so I was knocking on every door, trying to get funding. I had gone to the city hall a, a thousand times. One time I walked in, and I was sitting at the mayoral pilot. At this point, everyone knew me. And I remember the, there were like some floods in Durban, and the mayor walks in, and he's like, who's this kid? His right-hand man turns to him and says, oh, this is another kid we need to help. He's got a partial scholarship to study in America and wants to develop Durban. And at that point, I'd written a whole manifesto on how I wanted to develop Durban. So I handed over to him. And uh, the first thing he asked me is, like, who's your dad? Like, who's your father? And, um, you know, if you know anything about Durban politics, you know that your last name can go a long way. So I told him who my father was, and uh, he had no idea who that is. So he gave me a second chance and said, okay, why do you want us to pay for you to study in America when we could just easily put you at Durban University of Technology or University of Cape Town or Johannesburg. And then I said, well, if we all study in uh, Durban University of Technology or University of Cape Town, we're about to think in a similar way, which stunts the growth of the country. But if some of us go to already developed countries, we're able to learn how they were able to do this and learn those principles and combine it with the local ingenuity. To, to help accelerate the development of Durban and the country. So he gave me a smile of affirmation, turns to his right hand man, he says, go to the mayor, go forward, the mayor business awards, the mayor education awards, take all of that money, give it to this kid and let him go to school. And that's how I was able to go study in America. Wow. Wow, that's an incredible story. Appreciate it, man. Yeah, that's awesome. So then, um, yeah, you got to America. I, I love what you said. Um, how are we ever going to learn and grow if we don't experience what other people are doing? And I think that translates into literally any situation. It doesn't matter if you're trying to do something in your hometown and you want to go to a different city to figure out, uh, get some other ideas. But um, on a broader scale, that is one of the reasons I'm so passionate about this podcast is because I want to share ideas from all over the world um, and help broaden people's horizons to get new ideas and be able to say, hey, this 
this isn't how we do it in my country, uh, but that's awesome. Let me try to implement that. So yeah, I, I love that about what you said. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. But yeah, tell me, tell me what school was like there. What, what all did you learn? I know probably a lot of design, but you probably learned structure as well because you weren't doing engineering. Um, so what exactly did you learn there in architecture school? A lot, bro. A lot. <laughs> you know, you learn, you know, from Greece Roman to Renaissance and Baroque to Frank Lloyd Wright, uh, modernism, like a lot and we got to travel quite a bit you know from london to sweden to um bath um to like bolivia so just like learn learn quite a bit but as i said like you know there wasn't a lot about you know african architecture or asian architecture or south american architecture it was it was a very eurocentric approach mm. to architecture mm -hmm. but it's not like an and that's not an andrews thing that's just like an architecture school thing including architecture schools in south africa so you know that's what i'm i'm working towards changing um and i was part of leadership there i was part of, i was the president of the school of architecture through the american Institute of architecture students chapter there um but yeah i had a lot of fun then wow and yeah, you, you're talking about um, how you want to teach more people about uh, local architecture. Um, just as a sidestep to our story here, what, what are some of the unique, um, well, the unique uh, aspects of architecture there in South Africa? Um, you're mentioning the Zulu tribe and, and just the different tribes. What are some things that you're wanting to um, share with students from there in South Africa? So one of the interesting things is understanding the parallel worlds between the Western world and at least the Southern African world where, you know, the Western world is all about the tangible and the Southern African or the African world is all about the intangible. So it was, you know, Zulu architecture was never about the monument. It was never about the facade or how the building looked. It was always about the spaces and what spaces were in there and the spaces in relation to the culture, the rituals that happened there. Uh, there's a, there was a female space and a male space. You always had a back door because if someone passes away, they can never come out of the front door. They have to go out in the back door. And space, you know, having, you know, sacred value and, and meaning and, and more about how it's arranged versus European architecture is about European architecture is very intrusive, right? It's very intrusive to the landscape, it's intrusive to the people. It's about monuments, it's about all of it. So it's very interesting. There's a lot to unpack, but but it's it translates across the board. When you look at like Western law, which is always seeking to prove that one is right and the other is wrong. Mm. Right? So that's why you have lawyers and you have a judge and someone goes to jail. African or Southern African law or order of things was, well, you know, this is Tiana land, this is Sutherland land. Um, don't pass this line. But if you do, you'll have to pay, you know, a cow if you have 10. But if you don't have 10 cows, you have two, you don't have to pay a cow. But when you do have, it was, the law was all about negotiating 
resources and building relationships versus you are wrong and you are right and you need to go to hell or jail. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. that translates through the architecture and, and, and the communities. And for, for a long time, the Western world has demonized Africans or Southern Africans for oral traditions. Oh, they never wrote anything, blah, blah, blah. But actually, oral tradition is genius because when you think about it, something that's worked in the 1800s doesn't make sense now. But through oral tradition, you are able to keep the... It's like a broken telephone. You're able to keep the principle of the message, but the story changes to fit the new context. Hmm. I never thought of it that way. Yeah. That That's a really, really cool way to look at it. And... Uh, yeah, 100%. I love how you mentioned like our values are in two different places. The Western mindset is definitely more materialistic. And I feel like Eastern is more, yeah, more intangible. Um, family, yeah. you know, that, uh, that, that kind of values system. How, I know this might be a redundant or even a stupid question to ask, but how much do you feel like the architecture, the place you live in, affects your value system and how you live your life? I think more than we, more than we think. Um, so think like, uh, what's your favorite coffee shop? Oh shoot! Well, I actually don't drink coffee much, but here, uh, well, up in Eastfield, there was um, there was a really cool coffee shop uh, called. Hema bathe and sure. yeah we we love that place why because of yeah because of the atmosphere it was just this really small the small building um the old antique wooden floors the wooden walls and they also had a, a used a little shop where you could buy like um candles and reusable razors and like all these different reusable items so it was designed to be intimate. It it had vintage. It yeah. had um, community. It's like it's close. So all of those things, bro, it, we take them for granted. But like the type of conversations you had at that coffee shop, I can almost guarantee you would take a very different shape or form if you had at just like a, a regular Starbucks somewhere mm-hmm. or a, a Seattle coffee, right? And that's all because how space shapes how we exist. You know, like uh, I think Churchill puts it best when he says, we shape our buildings, thereafter they shape us. Wow. Yeah, that's a powerful quote. Uh, Is there anything else that we haven't covered that you wanted to share before we wrap up the podcast? Um, No, not really, but... I think it'd be cool if people go out and check out Child of Apartheid. It'd be cool if people could go and check out UASA.org and see how they could be a part of the movement of uh, making uh, architecture more inclusive, whether it's through sponsoring a student or participating in the program themselves and learning. Um, so yeah, man, uh, exciting stuff. Absolutely. Um, before we go, I have a section called the Rapid Fire Facts. 
you have been on many travels studying architecture and stuff during school and of course traveling back to South Africa so it's just a fun little section where I ask you a bunch of travel related questions and you say the first thing that comes to mind first question do you prefer beaches or cities 100% beach <laughs> Uh, what I is... live next to one right now. Oh, that's awesome. I'm in the uh... East Coast, yeah. <laughs> what is the worst food that you've ever tried? Russian <laughs> food somewhere. Um, yeah, I think in Portland or something like that. What kind of food? Russian food? Yeah, Russian. <laughs> that's awesome. I think it's Russian. You know when you're with a group and they're like, let's try Russian. I'm like, I've never heard anyone ever say that before in my life. <laughs> no, but no, that's, that's hilarious. I, I never really think of it as a food type, Russian food. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is, what is the, your favorite airline that you've flown with? Ah, oh, it's a hard one. <laughs> uh, Qatar. Ooh, uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, Qatar. <laughs> um, which do you prefer, train or bus travel? Train. <laughs> when you travel, are you more of a strict schedule kind of person or go with the flow? Definitely go with the flow. Nice. Do you prefer Apple or Android? <laughs> I'm colonized by Apple right now. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, what is when when you travel? Do you prefer group or solo travel? Uh, <laughs> the hard one. <laughs> group if it's like real homies, you know. Yeah, but like if yeah. you if you know them super well. Yeah. Hey. Otherwise, it's just like frustrating to travel with cats that are just annoying i hear you yep if you could live anywhere in the world where would you want to live permanently <laughs> i hope steven paid puerto rico for this one <laughs> <laughs> do you guys america. really love puerto rico <laughs> puerto rico feels like south africa without the baggage oh so Look, I'm from here, so I know apartheid. I, I see things, but when I go to Puerto Rico, I'm not as in touch with their problems as I am here, you know? That makes perfect but sense. But I still have the same feeling because the weather is very similar. They've got the Atlantic Ocean. Feels home away from home. I love it. That's awesome. Um, yeah, what is your favorite city that you visited anywhere in the world? I'll give this one to New York. <laughs> awesome. Good old New York. And then last yeah. question. It can be as long as you want it to be, but what makes travel worth it for you personally? Dude, the amazing people you get to meet and the networks and the connections and, and the dancing and uh, sometimes the good food. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. I uh, appreciate you coming on and sharing your story. 100%, man. Thank you for having me. I, I really had a great time.
Thank you so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and share this conversation with your friends. You can find me on social media at Travel Worth Living or on the web at TravelWorthLiving.com. I sincerely hope you'll join me again next week for another incredible conversation about travel. I'm Seth Sutherland, and this is Travel Worth Living.